It's been called the greatest constitutional document of all times, the foundation of the freedom of the individual against the arbitrary authority of the despot. Written in 1215 in a water meadow on the banks of the Thames River, Magna Carta is the first document in English history which ever placed any limits on what the king was able to do, and it marked a turning point in English government towards the institutions of parliament and democratic representation. The history of this watershed document, though, is not so palatable. It revolves around a tyrannical king, a group of rebel barons, the collapse of the Angevin Empire, papal interdiction, and scandals of adultery and pedophilia. Moreover, the Magna Carta was almost immediately broken by the king, and it would take centuries before a truly democratic government would ever emerge in England. You're listening to Race and Tyler Talk Wikipedia, episode 15, King John and the Magna Carta. This episode is part of a larger series about England in the High Middle Ages. If you'd like to follow along in the series, it is recommended, but not required, that you first listen to the episodes about the first king of England, William the Conqueror, the White Ship Disaster, and Eleanor of Aquitaine. Hello. Hey, Race. How's it going? Good. How are you? I'm doing just excellent. I have a getting to know you question. Okay, let's hear it. All right. This question was um, texted by my dad to my sister today, and she posted it on Twitter. Okay. And the question, without any other explanation, is what is your favorite time? Oh. And you can interpret that any way you want because yeah, I'm like, that, to think. that's all we got. <laughs> okay, I think I do think I have an answer. Okay. <clears throat> so I've interpreted this as not necessarily like a minute or an hour, but like time of day or really time of it doesn't happen every day necessarily. But you know that moment when you come home and you take your keys out of your pocket take your phone out, you take your wallet out. And if you're me, I always like, I take my shoes off and I change into my, depending on time of year, my pajamas or my shorts. And I just feel like unburdened. I I come home, I wash my hands and I'm in my, (laughs) I'm in my like cocoon. I'm very much an introvert. I've determined. And so I think that's my favorite time is when like the day is done My wallet is gone. I don't have to go and buy anything at the store. I don't have to. And I'm just free to do whatever I want. That's a good time. Specifically, there's something about like physically unburdening myself of like, all right, take out my car keys and my pocket knife and my Mm -hmm. cell phone and everything. And like I put I I kind of like arrange it on the counter. Oh, I love that. Put it put it in a line on our kitchen counter. I'm glad you do because my wife hates it. And my mom hated it in high school. Like I'd come home at night and I'd leave it all on the kitchen table. Like, why don't you put this in your room? And I don't know. But oh, that's an everyday place. Always like on the counter. Typically, yeah. I just like go and like line all my stuff up. And there's actually, um, I've seen products like they make these little trays, like um, 
that people will like these nice leather, like almost like a bowl where you put your stuff. And yeah, yeah. I think most people like laugh at that and are like, that's weird. But there's a very specific subset of people like me who are like, I would, I, I would like one of those. Oh no, nice <laughs> that's extremely real. I, this is yeah. funny because I recently just changed my thing dropping <laughs> place ah. because I just got a new dresser. And it has a, an extra drawer that I can use for that kind of thing. Perfect. So I've started getting used to throwing, to like dropping off only things yeah. in the one drawer of the dresser. Whereas in, in initially it was actually on my piano bench, which is kind of a weird place. But, you know, it's a small apartment. I make yeah. do. But I think that's, yeah. You but it's funny a- that you have a place like, you you know. Yeah, you, but you've got to have a thing-dropping place. I mean, that, and that, there's well, no better name for it than that. And you can't keep them on your person. Like, no. Right. It needs to be out of out of sight, out of mind. Right. And I, I have, like, a cigar box, an old cigar box that I keep on my dresser that is, like, in theory where I should put all that stuff. But, but that's – I don't walk out from my garage through my kitchen into my bedroom and put my things away. I just go and put it on the yeah, dresser. I think it needs to be as close to the front door as possible. Yeah. And I think ideally you could have like a little, you know, a credenza or something by your front yeah. door to keep that. But yeah. yeah. Okay. What that's about what, you? What's your that's, that's what I aspire to is uh, having a credenza someday. I, we'll get there. I think we, we've already discussed that having a second secret family in Canada, that's like part of the American dream. And a close second is credenza ownership. The credenza. If you have a credenza in Canada, you're really at the top of the pyramid. Yeah. Well, I love that interpretation. That's very poetic. Uh, I interpreted it pretty literally, actually. And my sister was like, who has a favorite time of day? And then I was like, oh, no, 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 no. I absolutely have a favorite time of day. And then Jeremy jumped in the the conversation and he, he had to qualify it saying, well, you know, this depends on day of the week and month of the year things like that and I, i'm like yes that's totally fair my favorite time of day currently is 5 15 okay. it is so beautiful out like well yeah and you know it depends on the the latitude right because if you're in a different city like you might have different sunset and sunrise times sure but 5 15 sure. right now in la is like twilight so the sun has gone down, but it's still light outside. Such beautiful weather. Oh, it's just my favorite. And I feel like, especially on the weekends, 515, it's like, okay, it's time to enjoy the night, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, um, it's I, probably like, I'm picturing, trying to picture it, and it's like that exact time. It's probably like, it'd be a really nice time to take photos of something. Like yes, the golden light. hour. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the golden yeah. hour. It's my favorite time to go for a walk. I love mm-hmm. to go for a walk and read my book or I'll go down to the hot tub and sit and read. It's so mm-hmm. lovely. Yeah. And you're, yeah, you're off of work. I like that. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's just, it's a really good time. I love it. What was, do you know what your dad was referring to? No, <laughs> I need to, I need to ask him. I listen to this episode and then I hope he calls me and we'll talk about what you, you meant. Something that they were talking about with context but who knows that's awesome (laughs) all right we're talking about magna carta yes this was one of the first episodes i had in mind when i called 
you about during this podcast Mm -hmm. and I realized that it's a junction of our two interests English history and the legal system so I'm very very excited to talk about this today Yes, me too. And you, before we were talking, you're like, I'm really excited to hear the legal details. And I don't, I hope, I hope it's interesting enough that we talk about Richard. And I was like, well, I, or Richard King John. And I was like, well, I want to hear the King John stuff because I (laughs) I know the legal stuff. So that works. I'm very excited. We have two spheres convening here. (laughs) Um, So I don't know about you, but, but before I read about Magna Carta on Wikipedia, what I knew from school and, you know, Jeopardy and stuff was I knew that it was a foundational legal document, sometimes called the first document ever to limit the power of the king in England, or, you know, sometimes like the first document that ever gave us like Republican democracy or, you know, things like that, where sure. all of a sudden you're deciding that the monarch doesn't have absolute power. But what I didn't know from school was that when they said limit the power of the king it's actually a specific king that they're talking about you know i thought generically it was like oh whoever has the office of monarch needs to be limited no they were specifically talking about king john in this case right (laughs) Uh, and king john you'll remember from our uh previous lectures in this series uh was the son of henry the second henry the second and eleanor of aquitaine had those four sons richard Henry the young king, Geoffrey, and King John. Mm. Um, and that's the King John that we're talking about here. And I mean, Race, you remember from the movie that King John is portrayed as like a real turd. Yeah, he's the worst. <laughs> so no one, I mean, you know, we don't know, but no one previously was asking to limit the power of Henry the Second or Richard the Lionheart or, you know, Henry the First or William the Conqueror. Uh, they were specifically asking to limit the power of King John. And we'll get into why that actually worked, you know, why that was even possible. Uh, My hope, though, for this episode is that we can talk about Magna Carta not as a mysterious, mythological, out-of-the-ether document that just kind of appeared, nor that we think of it as something that they specifically sit down to write so that one day we could have democracy. It wasn't that kind of thing. We'll talk about it as an agreement between specific people with a very specific king at a specific time for specific reasons. Yes. So two questions for me come to mind when I think of Magna Carta. The first one is how can you even limit the power of an absolute monarch? Like, how do you do that? And why would you want to do that specifically in this case why would you want to do so with king john so let's get into those two questions as for how you can limit the power of a monarch um at this moment in time and many moments throughout history in many different civilizations the civilization is subscribing to the idea of divine right of kings and that means that the king or the queen or the monarch is preordained before birth by God to rule on earth. So William the Conqueror received his crown at Westminster Abbey on Christmas Day. Those are two already two religious elements to his coronation. And Richard the Lionheart said, I am born in a rank which recognizes no superior but God, to whom alone I am responsible for my actions. He said that while he was on trial, actually. So, yeah, go figure. (laughs) Yeah, that's a whole different story. Uh, So divine right of kings 
should suggest that you cannot nor should you restrict the monarch's power because they've got God on their side. Right. That's the idea that monarchs preached about themselves. You know, obviously they want you to think that they're divinely appointed. Uh, But in reality, the King of England is not the only person or party on the earth that has power. And that's pretty critical to the story of King John. King John was not the only person that had power when he was ruling. And it's the swing in amounts of the power. It's the swing like from one party to the other that really put King John in a vulnerable position, which, you know, even made Magna Magna Carta possible. So there were other people that had power that obviously the Pope is a big one. (laughs) The Pope uh, lives in Italy and he has his own different, you know, thing going on. Uh, Another person who had power was the King of France. The King of France and the King of England at this time had a long rivalry because remember the Kings of England are French. They're in France. They're even holding French titles. William the Conqueror was Duke of Normandy. Right. So as King of England, he ruled England. But as Duke of Normandy, he technically had to report to the French king. Yeah. And so I mean, it's, a... it's so close. Like that's the nearest, no matter what. Oh, yeah. You know, it's even if they, yeah, it's, it's the closest power. So there's just naturally going to be some, you know, some overlap there. They're going to bump. Exactly. Yes. And they're holding lands in France. And so you've got borders that are touching. <laughs> It wasn't until a lot later that the English Channel really became the border between England and France, you know? Mm, Yeah. And then you've got the barons. The barons are a ruling class, people that hold a title and they've got land and money, etc. There's lots of different groups now competing with power. And it's because King John gets into scuffles with all three of these groups that he ends up being pretty vulnerable. Mm. Yeah, and that I mean that makes sense. It's it, so first of all, it's funny to see how often in these stories, like um, in this series that we've talked about, um, the English history series, like the Pope is always popping up, and it's yes. hilarious because, <laughs> like you said, like it's you're pretty far away from Rome at this point, yeah. but like it's just always they're like, well, I'm gonna tell the Pope if you don't stop. Yeah. Oh yeah. Seriously. <laughs> or like yeah, you know. So that that's always happening, and I mean we see that even like we talked about in our. Uh, in our um, discussion of Chile and Argentina, it's like, okay, well, I'm calling the Pope and we're going to settle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and the other thing that, that stands out to me about what you just said is like, it's also not surprising that you have these kind of crazy stories about um, John specifically, but others when like, when you take a person and then put them on a fancy chair and it's like, you have all the power and uh, the Lord put you here and no one is as special as you are. Like you're going to create a, if the person wasn't a psychopath already, you're going to create one. Yeah. You, you kind of see that repeated over and over people who take that a little too literally. And like you said here, he has all this power. And if he hadn't like tangled with these people and been like a huge jerk, he probably would have been fine. Like Richard and everybody before him was pretty much fine. None of them had issues. Like, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Like if, if he had just kind of kept to himself a little more and not as, as big of a jerk, he probably would have kept more power. Yeah. All right. We've been dancing around this idea the whole episode. Now we're finally going to talk about what, what was King John Steele? Like, why was he so bad? <laughs> <laughs> and 
he really is the end of an era here. You've had William the Conqueror, Henry the First, Henry the Second, Richard Lionheart, right? and Henry the Young King too was good too, even though we don't really count him. But they were considered to be strong leaders, kind of ruthless maybe, but they were still, you know, doers. You could kind of trust them to be the king. King John is just not that at all. He was so bad. No monarch of England has ever been named after him again. There is no John the Second. It's just Ooh. cutting it off with King John. There's yeah. no John the Second. There's no John the Second. Yeah, that's like the most common. <laughs> like, well, for the Pope, imagine. I think they're on like yeah, twentieth or something now. <laughs> I'm in the phone book, and there's only been one king because he was so bad. Oh my god, he was so bad. Yeah, I think we. <laughs> I think. I want to read more actually about like the nomenclature of the kings because I think they mm. try to avoid certain names. And John yeah. is definitely one of those names. Actually, the only other king who's never been, never had like a successor named after him is Stephen. We talked about Stephen when we talked about the Civil War. Yeah. Blah. And I think in his case, it was because he was a usurper. You know? Yeah, that you makes sense. One who's a usurper, and then you have one who just really sucked. Yeah. <laughs> so. King John, uh, you know, we talked about the the groups of part or the groups of people that had power: the Pope, the King of France, the barons. King John lost favor with all of these groups, and each of them has their own story to tell. Um, first, we'll talk about the Pope. The Pope at this time was Pope Innocent the Third, who <clears throat> his legacy in history is he was Pope forever. He started when he was really young, and he like was pope for almost a full century and he was very formidable so he was like you know one of the ones that made a name for himself you didn't want to mess with him that kind of thing so scary pope i scary one of the scary ones yeah <laughs> so king john or yeah so the archbishop of canterbury very important person in england dies they need to appoint a new one and the bishops in england typically elect this person by themselves but there was also a tradition that the king would have a say in who the Archbishop of Canterbury was. Church and state here are very closely working together. Yeah. And King John, not very popular, the bishops didn't really want him to have a say. So they elect their own Archbishop of Canterbury. And they don't ask King John who he wants. And obviously King John is very upset about that. He says, uh. no, I want this guy. So he puts his own guy to be Archbishop of Canterbury. And as you said, how are we going to settle this dispute? They take it to the Pope. Yeah. And Pope Innocent III, uh, his move is not to say that the bishops are correct or the King John is correct, but he's like, no, I actually have my own guy that I want to be Archbishop of Canterbury. <clears throat> so he sends that guy to be Archbishop of Canterbury. And King John is doubly mad at this point because everyone's breaking with his traditions and he doesn't get to choose who the archbishop should be. Wham, wham. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but so because they refuse to recognize, I think King John technically doesn't even let him in the country. He's like, you can't come in. So the Pope gets very angry and the Pope places a really interesting thing on England called an interdict. And that is when the church basically shuts down they stop performing all their functions. They don't have services on Sundays. They don't do weddings. They don't do funerals. They don't do christenings. They don't do baptisms. Wow. 
And yeah, it's almost like the church is closed. They don't even ring the church bells. And as you can imagine, being a peasant in 12th century England, that's going to cause you some distress because if you want to get married, the church can't do it. If you have a child who dies, they haven't been baptized. Obviously, that's a lot of spiritual pain, you know? Yeah. So, and it's King John's fault here. (laughs) He gets blamed for it. And the the thing lasts for about six years. So pope we talked about him this is <laughs> this is one of the three king john already has kind of stepped in it uh the, se- <laughs> the second one is the king of france i really won't go into much detail here but with the king of france the king of france ended up taking a lot of the land that they had in the empire at this time just because he was better at war so king john lost a lot of favor because he lost a lot of the land of the kingdom And then lastly, with the barons, the barons had a bunch of reasons to be mad at King John. They felt that he taxed them kind of unfairly. Um, They were mad at him that he lost all this land to France. But there there were two other things that caused a scandal. One was that King John had a habit of sleeping with their wives, just to be like, I show you that I can do this, you know? I'm more powerful than you watch this, which is pretty bad. <clears throat> and the other thing, <laughs> the other thing yeah. is he gets married. Great. He gets married to a 12 year old girl. Okay. Uh, yeah. Less, less great. great. It was a different <laughs> was time. A different time. You know, the 1200. <laughs> and well, I mean, that's the thing. People did get married very young politically back in the day. Empress Matilda, that we talked about with the um, white ship disaster, married when she was 10 years old. She was sent away to Germany to be the empress when she was only 10. And- so like you said, that, that, that's probably more of like, a, let's just hurry up and seal this deal really fast. Well, that's than like a, so that's, like that's a the trick. Of two yeah. people, <laughs> that's the trick. People recognized that it made sense politically to have these marriages at any age. Just, you know, you got dynamics of power all over the place. However, there was delicacy yeah. about the fact that this is a child and you don't want to be have yeah. a child cohabitate with an adult or, you know, even just a child marrying another child, there was some delicacy about at what age mm-hmm. it was appropriate to expect a child. So it kind of wasn't a different time. It was kind <laughs> they of were, a different time. <laughs> they kind of agree with us. But too. here's the thing. The source lecture that I've been listening to, what she said about King John is that the thing with King John is he did not observe that delicacy. So he marries a 12-year-old and he's just like, all right, let's go. And that, that did cause a scandal. That was not the kind of thing that was going to be acceptable. You know, thankfully, we can be grateful that it wasn't acceptable then. Yeah. Well, yeah, good for, good for the 12-year-old yeah, I mean, people. that's like, <laughs> it sounds like pedophilia to me. Who can say, but, you know. Certainly, yeah. But at least they were like not know, so fast. Not so, yeah. Not so fast. I, I, okay. Yeah. Point for the for the barons. <laughs> so the barons were all kinds of scandalized. So obviously, you've got this guy who's like, "I'm gonna be a pedophile king, and I'm gonna sleep with all your wives," 
they, long story short, are pretty angry at him. Um, and yeah, that leads us into what they decided to do next, which is put a stop to it. So what does it limit? So in a way, Magna Carta is kind of a grab bag. So if you go and read the text, which I encourage you to do, it's really quite fascinating. I've got some highlights here, but if you're interested at all in this, um, it's very easy to Google and find the text of it, which um, is pretty amazing that we have such a good copy of it. I think that's really cool that we can see with such detail, like specifically what they were agreeing to. And so Do we, we know it, what language it was written in? Was it French? It was in Latin. Latin, I wondered. A, okay. An abbreviated form of Latin. And an interesting thing is like... Um, I think this might be part of, we've talked about this a little bit before, but like, it's easy to have as an American have like young country syndrome where you're like, well, where's the copy of the Magna Carta? And it's like, that's adorable that we have like one (laughs) copy (laughs) of our documents, but it's like, this was so many years ago. And so there's not, there's not one Magna Carta. And um, so like if, um, Nicholas Cage was forced to steal the Magna Carta, <laughs> which I assume he will be either in his personal life or for a motion picture. International um, treasure. Exactly. Yeah. It, oh, that's great. International <laughs> treasure. He has to steal the Magna Carta. Hollywood. I'll watch it. it. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, but there isn't one. But the copies that we do have, and we do have copies, um, and there was probably never one, like um, if there was one that was signed at the location, there was also probably others made at that time. Um, And as you can imagine, we don't really know a ton about it. Anyways, if you go and read any of the copies, the extant copies that we have, um, the, the translations of them, it's really a grab bag and it's fun to see. It kind of reminds me of reading through, like if you've ever uh god bless your soul had to read through like a congressional like a like a budget bill or an appropriations or something it's like ways and measures and then like oh we need to give money to the this certain it's just like all over the place it's not nearly as like clean as you'd think it would be and so magna carta is that way um in in some aspects so like tyler said they were really interested in limiting john's power and like we have got to to lock this guy down he's all over the place he's causing us like he's embarrassing our country in some ways like he was like you were saying he's getting in beefs with the pope he's messing with france and he's messing with us so we need to like lock him down on all those fronts but then at the same time they also have just like day-to-day stuff that they kind of need to to manage um it was a practical document governing matters that were pressing at the time um it was not intended to be like an inspiring precedent setting document. It wasn't like, you know, our um, stories of the American founding documents where it's like, and we shall gather and we will make the document and it will be wonderful, <laughs> which really kind of was there. Like, that's not really revisionist. They were like, we're going to No, that's this. true. Yeah. yeah. And it's going to be like, we're going to sign it. We're going to send it to England for the Declaration yeah. of Independence or for the Constitution. Like, we're not leaving this room till we get it right. But this was just like, Let's just meet somewhere. And they, the place where they met, um, Runnymede, was specifically chosen because it was like neutral ground because they were very mad at each other. So they picked this neutral ground. Anyways, it wasn't, I think they would be surprised to find how much attention we pay to this document. <laughs> but I've got some highlights that will kind of illustrate what I'm trying to say. So let me give you one. There's lots of concern over death, um, like inheritance, what the heir gets, 
that kind of stuff. So here's a little snippet. At her husband's death, a widow may have her marriage portion and inheritance at once and without trouble. She shall pay nothing for her dower, marriage portion, or any inheritance that she and her husband held jointly on the day of his death. She may remain in her husband's house for 40 days after his death, and within this period, her dower shall be assigned to her. So that's very practical. And in some ways, probably not of um, like concern for the king or with the king. This is just like, we've had problems with this. We kind of need to set a rule. And mm. um, it reflects like some still like common um, rules, like um, the inheritance that she and her husband held jointly on the day of her, of her death. If, um, you know, if you've talked to somebody about divorce, it'll, some states are joint property states. And did you own this together? Well, then we have to divide it up in these certain ways. Then there's other things that show up um, that are a little bit more forward or not forward, yeah, forward thinking and kind of like higher level. So um, here's another example. The city of London shall enjoy all its ancient liberties and free customs, both by land and by water. We will also grant that all other cities, boroughs, towns, and ports shall enjoy all their liberties and free customs. Wow. So, so basically, um, you know, ships need to be able to come and go. Merchants need to be able to come and go. Um, it should, like, literally, I think where it says here, talking about free customs, um, it's talking about, like, um, commerce. And so this is something that, in a way, does limit the power of the king. Like, you can't tax a city out of obli into oblivion. You can't um, take away, you know, the rights of a city. If this port city has always had ships run through it, the king, and I'm kind of extrapolating here, but the king can't just come and be like, okay, you're not allowed to ships ship things anymore like let the cities do what they're going to do um, a mutual agreement about how each city will kind of maintain its independence and that makes sense considering how divided the of the nation were if you could even call it a nation at that time um and and we see that in the fact that these barons were all like hey is he like totally hosing you guys down there in sussex because he is really you know <laughs> sleeping with all our wives up here <laughs> and so so it was like, look, just leave all of our cities alone. Don't, you know, every city should be able to kind of do its own thing. So I think that's a really interesting huh. one. I'm also really fascinated by this portion where it says the city of London shall enjoy all of its ancient liberties. And that interests me for two reasons. One, um, just the, the hilarious notion that they're like, well, none of these like modern day, <laughs> you know, cutting edge to it's just so funny to us it feels so old but yeah. it just puts into perspective every period no matter who what human you talk to they'd be like well there's the ancient way of doing things they, and that's really kind of sobering in a way they would have called themselves um, like modern yeah that's that'll uh that'll give might might give you a little existential crisis if you think about that too long but then also just the the um the the tendency that we have to put importance on our ancient um liberties like the like the the notion that because this is of ancient date it's good or just um i don't know like hey this is this is the way this was was you can't you the city of london needs to have mm, what it's always yeah. had like this is just i don't know i think that's that's still a very powerful thing in in terms of modern government and how we try and divide up power oh, and organize yeah. things. Yeah. 
so then there's others like no sheriff or constable or whatever um, shall are, are to hold lawsuits that should be held by the royal justices. So just like organization, jurisdictional questions. And then there's some really ticky tacky stuff, all fish weirs, which are like fish traps, fish trapping enterprises where you kind of dam the river shall be removed from the Thames, the Medway, you know, wow. the Thames and the Medway and throughout the whole of England, except on the seacoast. So there was lots yeah. of day to day <laughs> stuff. Um, and lest we be too generous to the um, to the woke uh, barons trying to stop pedophilia. We do have this slightly troubling entry. If anyone who has borrowed a sum of money from Jews dies before the debt oh. has been repaid, his heir shall pay no interest on the debt for as long as he remains oh, under boy. age. So, so there's a few things in here talking about debts, and then, but we have special rules for debts to, um, as it says, to the Jews. <laughs> and I think this is also really fascinating to look at, just to think about the depth of some of our social constructs and conceptions. And I don't really have anything specific to say about like, I'm not an expert on the history of anti-Semitism, but just the idea that like, we've been thinking there, there are thoughts that people have and ways of thinking and um, lots of negative and, you know, what I would call not good ways of thinking that are very, yeah. very old. <laughs> and it's it's kind of does it an injustice. Um, this is sort of a tangent, but to be like, look, let's just get over this. Like, why can't we all just love each other? I have a coexist yeah. bumper sticker <laughs> on my car, and that's a beautiful idea. But it's kind of crazy to go back and think like, hmm, if we've been treating a, di a group of people differently and lesser than for um, apparently nine hundred yeah. years. You just have to reckon with that in some ways. I think um, you can think of examples in American history, certainly along those lines where it's like, why can't you just get yeah. over it? And it's like, well, this is pretty baked into the way that the culture is set up in some ways. Even into this. Yeah, it's I like written it's... down here in this quote unquote foundational document. Absolutely. Yeah. So basically it was a little bit of everything. It would probably shock the king of the time and everyone to know that like wait this document super important <laughs> to you guys um i think it would in some ways but and there are other examples that we can we can get to um but it limits um lot it, it really was unprecedented in the sense or or at least um very important in the sense that it was saying look here's the line and this king you do not do. Mm -hmm. Here's another line and this you do not do. And that's, um, as you mentioned in the beginning to a monarch who has absolute power, who's woken up every morning and told you're a, a special fancy man. <laughs> um, that's a big deal to say like, look, no more of this. You can do until here, but beyond this, you do not go. That's, that's big. Mm -hmm. That's significant. And so in that sense, it does make sense that it kind of echoes down to us today. Yeah. So they get together at Runnymede, they sign the Magna Carta, and then what happens almost immediately, King John breaks the promises that he had signed to. And reading the text, it seems like they they wrote it, but they made it sound like it's coming out of his voice. Right. I miss that. I kind of read, and it was like, I, King John, or he uses like the royal we, like we, the, like, promise to do this and this and this right and it's it, he obviously didn't 
But <laughs> imagining that he did, immediately he reneges on his promises, and he did sign the document. So, yeah. um, so they start fighting. There's like you know military skirmishes at this point between the two, between the barons and King John's group, um, and then they kind of come to another compromise. I think they they do kind of like a renewal thing at some point. Eventually, it just kind of stalemates because King John dies, and at that point his son Henry the third becomes the king and they have a whole different can of worms with Henry the third. So Magna Carta is kind of interesting because, you know, we talk about it being so influential, but they didn't even keep it (laughs) for the first (laughs) few years. It wasn't even obeyed. Uh, And the idea that it, you know, created representative democracy definitely did not happen in the first few years after it existed. Right. But my question, yeah. I'm excited to talk about this, is how did it actually influence our legal system and government? Yeah. And how long did that take? It's interesting, like you said, that this kind of led to a ser- like a series of similar decrees. And there's other Wikipedia pages on those that you can go look at. So it was like, and then six years later, John was like, okay, seriously, guys, this time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and... Um, so they did a few things like that and um, led to more kind of similar treaties. Um, and it was a trend, at least during, like you said, during John's reign of trying to get concessions from the king and limiting royal power. Now, there are some specific examples that I'll, I'll list here about kind of how it has influenced government today um, in our system. I'm by no means like a legal historian, which is a thing. And it's really interesting. Um, mm. People who, you know, are like, oh, you want to know about divorce in um, 1790? <laughs> yeah, like they know that kind of stuff. <laughs> I had a, um, a, a, a member of the faculty at, at U of A where I went to law school who um, he would proctor our exams. And every time before he'd start the exam, he would give us an archaic legal term just for fun, huh. the word of the day. And archaic so meaning would, that we don't really use them anymore? Yeah, like that kind of stuff. Like, oh, this is a divorce term from the 18th Whoa, century. okay. Yeah, he was just full of them. He, he read, he loved that kind of stuff. And so, like, he never gave us Thalweg, but I'm <laughs> sure if I found him at the what is a Thalweg, he would instantly know what it was. <laughs> I remember, like, he gave us the legal definition for flotsam and jetsam, which is a real ah, thing. Oh, my goodness. And, like, he, he gave us... Anyways, there are people who know this kind of stuff. I'm not one of them, but... Um, we can talk about some of the stuff that um, remains even in our like enshrined in our constitution. And just as a quick plug, if you're interested in this stuff, there is a fabulous website, um, consource.org and full disclosure, I actually interned for these guys. Um, But what they do is they take kind of um, foundational American documents and they basically footnote them. So like if you like reading a Bible and Jesus says, I am the way, the truth and the light, there's like a little, you know, a number. And at the bottom, it's like, oh, there's a similar passage in wherever in John. Um, They do the same thing with founding documents, including like letters and diaries of the founding fathers. So it's really cool if you want to get it's a very specific kind of research you might want to do, but it is very neat. And so um they, I, I use their website for a lot of this stuff. And it's really cool to see um, kind of how uh, even just like a turn of phrase, like, oh, cruel and unusual punishment. That's a nice way of phrasing that. And it just sticks through history, you know. Um, 
and and we might as well start there. So there is um, some discussion of cruel and unusual punishment in in the Magna Carta that we can jump to. So in um, um, section 20 of the Magna Carta, so that's a, these are modern editions, but they've kind of numbered the paragraphs basically. So in section 20, um, I'll read a little bit. So it says, for a trivial offense, a free man shall be fined only in proportion to the degree of his offense and for a serious offense correspondingly, but not so heavy as to deprive him of his livelihood. And um, none of these fines shall be imposed except, except by the assessment on oath of reputable men of the neighborhood. So um, the consource website links that to cruel and unusual punishment clause of the United States Constitution. I'm sure there's some interesting history. You could go read about that. But that's an example of um, a pretty clear principle that we believe mm -hmm. in, right? If it's trivial, you'll you find in proportion to the degree of the offense, serious also should be correspondingly serious. Um, there's sections about eminent domain. So that's the idea of the government seizing lands or taking from somebody. So that's in paragraph 31 of the Constitution. Um, neither we nor any royal official will take wood for our castle or for any other purpose without consent of the owner. Um, there's discussion of eyewitnesses, the importance of having eyewitnesses for accusations of crimes, um, jury. Um, there's a, quite a bit of discussion about jury um, type issues, which I find very interesting um, because it makes sense that these guys, um, as, as you pointed out, Tyler, this is not like establishing freedom for everybody by any means. And it's not even really establishing anything for peasants yeah uh -huh. <laughs> it's mostly hooking up the the barons yeah. and they're the ones who wrote it which makes sense and if you think about it if you're a baron so you're like this sub kind of um monarch you run your little corner of of jolly old england and it would would and probably you know on some level should be terrifying to you at the thought of you being judged by your peasants <laughs> like <laughs> Like, like the John example, if you're sleeping with everybody's wife, the last person you want on the jury is like all of those guys. Right. Yeah. Know? And so the idea that comes through here where it's like, look, if I'm going to be judged, I want to be judged by my peers. I want other barons to be the ones <laughs> passing judgment on me. That makes some, some good logical sense. So in section 39 of the Magna Carta, no free man shall be seized or imprisoned or stripped of his rights or possessions, outlawed, exiles, deprived, all this stuff, nor will we proceed with force against him. Um, except by the lawful judgment of his equals or by the law of the okay. land. And so it makes sense why you would want that. Um, and, you know, today we have the same somewhat similar concept of a jury of your peers. Um, I think one of the more interesting examples that I'll point to is um, the idea of, of judicial powers, just because there's some really cool tie-ins to modern history. So section 45 of the Magna Carta says, we will appoint as justices, constables, sheriffs, other officials, only men that know the law of the realm and are minded to keep it well. So that's makes good sense. Pretty basic. You know, we want people who understand the law to be the, uh, <clears throat> um, the judges. So that section of the Magna Carta was actually quoted by the Supreme court of California in 1974 in a case. And um, so that's pretty recent for us to be like, well, as of course, as the Magna Carta. Well, says. you know, maybe um, I'm wrong here, but I, I was kind of surprised to hear a while ago that 
it's really rare for lawyers to cite like old cases and old documents. Is that true? Like typically what you're citing is, you know, a current precedent or like a more recent case. Yeah. I mean, there's going to be exceptions, but yes, I mean, you want, you want whatever the The last thing, right? Yeah. The last thing. Yeah. So like if you're arguing to the Supreme court of California, you definitely want to know the last thing that they said on this issue. And sometimes it's really old. Like if it's a less, you know, discussed topic of the law, then it's like, well, you know, and sometimes the court hasn't said anything. I remember uh there's, there's some interesting cases that I got as like practice in law school where it's like, the Arizona Supreme Court hasn't said anything about mm. this. Like there's one case about automobiles from 1935, you know, it, was, it had something to do with cars and it was like, and that is obviously not super applicable yeah. today because cars were so much different. Yeah. And um, so then you, you want to find a similar, you know, court. So if, if you're arguing in the Arizona Supreme Court, you might want to say, well, New Mexico's done this. Oh, uh-huh. New Mexico's quite similar to Arizona. It wouldn't be probably as useful to be like, well, the uh, New York Supreme Court or the Ma- uh-huh. Massachusetts Supreme Court, because there's so much different. Their land use is going to be different. Yeah. They're just their population is different. But yes, yeah, citing a super old document. They're um, like, as the barons said in 1215. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And and so that's one that's kind of why it's interesting that the Supreme California Supreme Court does this. But they they do it as the very last thing they say. And it's not like the central pillar of what their decision is. But they do say, I mean, just a little um, sprinkling at the end. Yeah. Yeah. They say, look, even as far back as as the Magna Carta, we've recognized that this is important. And so the case was in 1974. And um, what had happened was there were um, judges that were presiding over criminal trials including over offenses punishable by jail sentences. And um, some of those judges were not attorneys. They they did not go to law school. Now, I know at least for Arizona, you still can be a non-attorney judge, but for like a misdemeanor court. So not something that you would go to jail for. Mm. So like, um, you know, um, well, I won't. I won't start listing misdemeanors, but like I, 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 I interned briefly for um, at this um, with with some judges in Tucson. And there were several of them that were excellent judges and were very um, wise and good and good, um, good on the bench. But they did not go to law school. And, you know, they're not handling super high level, complex legal things because it's um, misdemeanors. It still takes a lot of you know wisdom and, and knowledge. But there are cases where. It's not a judge. Anyway, in California, in this case, they were they they had non-attorney judges over criminal trials with like real jail sentences. Mm. And the California Supreme Court in 74 says, okay, we can't do that anymore. That is a violation of their rights. They deserve, um, you know, that's not they're not getting the correct process under the law that the Constitution requires. And um, and it says at the end. Ever, even since the Magna Carta, quoting this section I just read, we've realized that it needs to be um, people that know the law of the realm and are minded to mm. keep it well. So there's some real echoes for sure in our um, in our current legal system, some specific concepts. Um, as far as influencing like American history, <clears throat> those guys read everything like Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, George Washington. Um 
they knew a lot of things <laughs> and they had, they read everything from Cicero to, you know, John Locke to certainly the Magna Carta. Um, but it would be giving too much credit to Magna Carta to probably say that like, oh, this is where this idea comes mm. from. Like, look, trial by jury, this is where it comes from. Um, it's certainly a, a great place to point to where it existed before. But um, I think really the story of Magna Carta, the story is probably the more powerful thing. Um, just the idea of people getting together and saying, we know that you're in charge of us, but we're going to put some limits on that for everybody's good. Um, just that kind of concept and that spirit is probably more, had more impact on our current system and the way we do things than specifically them saying like, well, you know, this is how, you know, this is how you have to do um, a jury trial or whatever. Mm -hmm. It's really more about the concept. And it is a, it is a romantic concept of these guys coming together and basically sitting the king down at, at um, you know, under duress basically and saying, you can't do this to us anymore. We're demanding that you behave better and that you quit taking advantage of us. Um, yeah, it's, that's, a, that's a romantic idea. And you can see how that people would seize on that. It's like the idea of consent of the governed is all of a sudden realized, you know, in a specific Absolutely. place. They went to Runnymede and they said, we're going to hash this out. You do not have our consent right now. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's, it's a very convenient thing to point to, even though, like we said, well, it was immediately disobeyed and it, it covered everything from, you know, big lofty ideas to also like, hey, quit taking all the fish out yeah. of the Thames. <laughs> and, um, but like you said, just that idea of like, look, they did it at Runnymede. Why can't we do it now? Like if, if any time a king's picking on you, you can be like, look at the Magna Carta. People have been trying to do this oh, forever. Yeah. And so that, I, that idea of just kind of pointing to it, I think is probably the most, um, one of the more powerful things. I also think it's interesting because the nobles were limiting themselves in some ways in doing this. They agreed to some, some ground rules for themselves. It was like a compromise, so, right? Like, tit for tat kind of yeah. yeah yeah and and the idea that there's good in everyone having some limits to uh -huh. themselves um is also a powerful thing like i i think that um a person who would sit down and say i'm in charge and the first thing i'm gonna do is say take basically take away some of my powers mm, yeah. <laughs> um that's a really um ingratiating thing to do no nope. it basically proves your it is um for instance um, I think that a, a cool thing, um, this is maybe too, um, getting too into like the current moment, but there are a lot of people who are worried that um, Donald Trump, the previous president, was going to pardon himself. And that was like a legal issue that had never really been like discussed. And a lot of people for, I think, pretty good reasons were like, I don't know how much I like the idea of somebody being able to pardon themselves. Yeah. Like you can just go do whatever you want and then be like, just kidding, I pardon myself. And so I thought, wouldn't that be interesting if whoever wins, if the first thing they do on their first day in office is like, look, I know people were worried about this. I'm just going to take that off the table. Yeah. And so mm -hmm. like now we have President Biden. If you were to do that, just say like, look, I am going to say now that I will not pardon myself no matter what happens and that no president should ever do that. That would be a really powerful thing, I think, and kind of proof that like we're doing this. We're trying to limit something for the good of everyone um that's that's just good that's just good principle moving forward yeah. um i think that would have been that would be that's a really a smart cool move, thing to do yeah. yeah yeah you would look really good and so um i think that 
again, that's that's sort of in the spirit of this of like, look, king people have sat down for a long time and, and drawn rules about what they should and shouldn't do. And um, and people who are willing to abide by that are going to get trust. Mm-hmm. They're going to, you know, you're going to trust um, that system much more than John, who's just like, I can do whatever I want and I'll sleep with your wife if right. I feel like it. Joe, I hope you're listening to this and think about how you could earn some goodwill. <laughs> I, I I actually do think that that would be because it, it would just be such a smart move. But I have lots of, you know, I've, I've basically convinced myself at this point that I should be at the president's elbow, <laughs> no matter who the president is. I'm like, he, he should listen to what they should listen. to. What I have saying. to agree with that. I think you'd be a fantastic <laughs> advisor. Um, a lot of my ideas are very like, um, and this just kind of speaks to my personality. Are very like um, how to um, earn good peacemaker. Yeah, peacemaker. Yeah. yeah, just like wouldn't it be nice if? We did... <laughs> um, which well, that's you know, pretty shrewd, that. and you know that I think that makes for good politics is knowing like what to do at the right moment. It kind of depends yeah. on like the last twenty four hours, you know, at all times. Yeah, and. And that's one thing that, like, going back to the beginning of this episode, that kind of upsets me about John is like, dude, just be a little yeah, bit man. less. <laughs> yeah, be a little bit less of a jerk. And you're going to, you're just going to, you can probably still do 90% of these things. You just won't upset people as much about it. You know, you know what? what I mean? My source material had that thesis, actually. It was saying, like, the Barons probably would have been okay with John if it wasn't for the land loss. Like they probably would have put yeah. up with the child wife and the sleeping with them, you know, all everybody's <laughs> wives and stuff. But the land loss was, it was like, you've gone too far. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. Think about how many lines you have to cross. Oh for, goodness. For like, the, like the nobility country to be like, no, no, no. Yeah. Yeah. To be like, I'm thinking this King has, is, he's abusing his power <laughs> but it's no i really know what you mean by this my friend gave the image the other day of you know how like in those fantasy movies there's two doors and one of them is like leads to safety and the other one leads to like a fiery explosion there are some mm. people in the world that just for some reason insist on choosing the bad door and it's like, why are you choosing that? Like, it would just be so simple to do the normal, nice thing, you know? But they choose chaos yeah. and violence yeah. every single time. And King, King yeah. John definitely seems like that. You know, wakes yeah. up one morning and says, I'm going to shake it up with the Pope today. <laughs> yeah, some, some men just want to watch the world burn. Yeah. And I, I don't know if it's ego. Like I said, I, I've got to believe that being woken up every morning and being like, you're the most specialist man. Has got to be part of that. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Um, and I mean, Richard Lionheart and, is your brother. He's a famous crusader. That's a big shadow to live in. Yeah. Henry and is I mean, also so, a big shadow. Yeah. And sometimes doubling down works. If you're just like, look, I'm not going to let this Pope push me yes, around. Uh-huh. People will be like, Mm, John, very shrewd. He was, he was, he was tough on Pope. You, you know, know what? Isn't that interesting? How but, that works sometimes. Sometimes, you know, uh, being obstinate and, you know, I guess you'd use the word resilient or something is respected. But yeah, clearly in this case, he picked the wrong things to be obstinate about. Yeah, and I guess you know that's maybe that's the reason why fewer presidents take my peacemaking advice because you could so easily be cast as 
you know, um, wishy-washy or weak. Um, yes. And, and then... so it kind of does just depend on, on the wins that day. If it's like, look how, you know, look how shrewd it was for this president to, to like, like Nixon gets, um, I don't think he gets enough credit as Liz Lemon said, <laughs> good things in China. Um, but like, people are like, look, he, he, he tried, you know, some diplomacy and he sat down and, and he tried to kind of thaw relations. Um, whereas that very easily, and I'm sure at the time was in some corners pitched as like, he is kowtowing yeah. to the Chinese and he's, um, and so he's you a pushover. Heavy is the head that yeah. Yeah, yeah. You can't make a good decision, good decision either way. I do think, um, yeah. as much as we blame King John here, there is an element of wind to it and luck, right? You know, I would be really interested in hearing more about the circumstances of why the Magna Carta couldn't have existed before King John, you know? Was England yeah. just too young when William the Conqueror came riding in? I mean, it was 200 years prior, you know, and maybe the systems just weren't in place or maybe people didn't want a jury of their peers. I don't know, you know? I don't even know if the baronet yeah. established them, but... Yeah, I think that's probably part of it. You'd have to feel some sense of unity in order yeah. to be able to say, like, this is what we yeah, want. Uh -huh. Um, yeah, as, as, um, the documentary Monty Python and the Holy Grail, um, points out, there's a great scene where King Arthur rides by some peasants and go, who are you? And he says, I'm Arthur, King of the Britons. And they said, um, King of the who? <laughs> <laughs> and he says, Britons, we're all Britons. And they, he goes, I didn't vote for you. <laughs> um, which you oh, yeah. probably would yeah, you would suffer from that a little bit. Like, if you rode into a village and be like, who are you? Like, what is your nationality? They'd be like, we don't have a word for that. Yeah, yet. no. <laughs> you know, that had to be developed. Definitely the idea of England as a nation was not existing at the time of uh, William the Conqueror. And when it, when it did mm -hmm. roll around to King John, it was still, you know, nebulous in the way that we didn't right. really get for a, a little time after that. Yeah, and so I wonder if it was it was nebulous, but it had just kind of coalesced enough for them to be like, hey, if we all get together, we might be able to like slow this guy's roll a little bit. Maybe the know? fact that King John was not victorious in battle made him appear weak to the barons, because what I know of William the Conqueror mm -hmm. is he was tyrannical and very dangerous, and, you know, he won battles. So I'm sure people were just kind of afraid of standing up to him. Or maybe they just thought, he did everything the right way, you know. I don't, I don't know much about his operations day to day, but maybe they thought he actually was doing a good job. Yeah, and also the more stable you get, the more you can worry about things like, hey, yeah, if I die, what's going to happen yes, to my wife? Uh -huh. Whereas if if it's just like we're getting murdered by Vikings, <laughs> you know, you have less time. To think Who about cares that about the money? Like they just burned all the money. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um. So let me ask you something. I, I really like um, playing the game. And anytime I get to talk with like an expert or somebody who knows a lot about something, one of my questions that I like to ask is, if you could just snap your fingers and change one thing, like one kind of realistic thing in the world. So if it's like a criminal justice person or a, a climate person, like if you could change one thing about the way the world is going in terms of, you know, preserving wildlife, what would be the one thing that you would change? So let's say, Tyler, you're one of the barons at Runnymede. <laughs> Um, 
what would you like, what would be on your wish list of things that you would like? And, and it can be like a modern day problem, but what's one thing that you could like, you wish you could like tie the president's hands or the king's hands on and be like, this is how we're going to do this. Right oh, now. like to make them decide on a way to do something or like a specific. That or like outlaw, like, like, um, you know, um, for instance, I would fully support King John signing into law. No small talk at the urinal. <laughs> oh, we're talking like, we we're can, talking like day to day elements. If if you want, I mean, I think that's of national. I, I think it is. Like, yeah. Like, don't don't. Chat okay, me let up. me think of this. In a moment of uh, ire, the other day, I tweeted out four specific things that I would get rid of, and I put it in a poll on Twitter. Okay, so I asked people which one. So this is this is this is Tyler's decree at Runnymede. <laughs> this, this is, is this is yeah. Depressing. These are the four things I would remove. Number one is in a breakfast burrito using refried beans instead of black beans. Oh. So wait, you support that? Or no, support get that? that out of here. Refried beans in a breakfast <laughs> burrito? No. <laughs> off with their off heads. with their heads. Oh, and can I just say rice in a breakfast burrito? Get it out of here. I do not want that. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think I agree with you. That's thing number one. Thing number two, getting rid of that drawer of loose dead pens that everybody has in their house. <laughs> I will come to your homes with a box of fresh pens. Get the dead ones out. <laughs> um, over the summer, I went through my parents' huge bin of markers and pens and stuff, and we threw out <laughs> all the old ones, and it felt... It was like putting on, a, it was like coming home and taking all your wallet and your phone off and you just feel so relieved. It's therapeutic. Yeah. Yeah. I would also get rid of dining room tables that have benches instead of chairs. Oh, I don't, I don't feel strongly about that. What's your, what's I don't your like, oh, I like a chair with a back. Benches never have backs. Mm. If oh, it has okay. a back, you know, that's fine. I gotcha. And yeah. Painted brick. Get the painted brick <laughs> up here. That is such a disservice. Oh, I think that's just a criminal thing. <laughs> paint it white or whatever, you know. That's the kind of stuff they do on those rustic, chic, home network, whatever things. I hate it. Yeah. yeah. So there you go. There's my tirade. <laughs> I love it. Um, and so it shall be throughout the kingdom. <laughs> So the other thing I feel strongly about is I fully support the in and out method of ketchup distribution, which is you go get your little white cup and you squirt it in. Don't give me 15 packets of ketchup and make mm -hmm. me go do manual labor by squeezing them out. Because oh, first of all, usually I end up with too many packets and then I just throw them in the garbage. The restaurant's not going to take them back if I don't use them. No. Yeah. So it's and wasteful. I, yeah. They always give you like one or two and that's definitely not enough. But then... Right too many and then it's like no i totally yeah. agree i feel like i either get one or two or i get like 17 yeah and then yeah so let me let me be the master of my own ketchup <laughs> one footnote before we close out the episode for today race mentioned his source material for this episode con source which has indexed historical legal documents and made them easier to research I also want to recommend the source material I've been using for this series about the Middle Ages. It's a lecture series under the Great Courses, and I found it on Audible. It's called The Story of Medieval England from King Arthur to the Tudor Conquest. It's given by Jennifer Paxton, a professor at Georgetown University, 
And it's really engaging material and is full of much more detail that we don't have the time to cover in our podcast. If you want the full story of the Middle Ages in England, I definitely recommend checking it out. Thanks for listening today. If you'd like to follow or message the show, check out at Race and Tyler Pod on Twitter, at Race and Tyler Talk Wikipedia on Instagram, or you can email us at Race and Tyler Talk Wikipedia at gmail.com. Thanks again. We'll see you next time.